You're listening to EHA Unplugged, Episode 5, SAA. Welcome back to the fifth episode of EHA Unplugged. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their field of expertise. Today's podcast speaker is transplant expert Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, my name is Sean McCann. I was professor of hematology and uh, academic medicine in Trinity College and St. James's Hospital in Dublin in Ireland. And I carried out the first successful bone marrow transplant in Ireland in 1984. I'm making this podcast on behalf of the European Hematology Association. So I'd like to talk about a fairly rare disease known as severe aplastic anemia, or we'll call it SAA for short. Now, it's quite a rare disease, so you may wonder why we're bothering to make a podcast about such a rare disease. The incidence, we guess, is about two and a half per million in Europe and the USA, and appears to be significantly higher maybe two or three times higher in Southeast Asia, which uh, for which we have no good explanation at the moment. And one of the reasons I'm talking about is that it has a very good response to treatment with uh, hemopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT. And in our experience, uh, and in most big centres' experience, the survival of transplant recipients is between 85 and 90%. So from the transplanter's point of view, it's in young patients, it's very amenable to successful cure. Now, like all things in medicine, the first thing we need to do is agree on some diagnostic criteria. And we still use the criteria with a few modifications of Dr. Bruce Kamita, which have been around for quite a long time. And we would take a marrow cellularity of less than 25% with no abnormal cells, a neutrophil count of less than 0.5 by 10 to the 9 per liter, and a reticulocyte count of less than 20 by 10 to the 9 per liter. Now, we've made a slight modification on Kamita in that we have a disease we call very severe aplastic anemia when the neutrophil count is less than 0.2 by 10 to the 9 per litre. The platelet count is usually less than 20 by 10 to the 9 per litre. So any two of the above criteria are really adequate to consider a diagnosis of SAA. Now, like a lot of things in medicine, the diagnosis seems quite straightforward when it's written down. But in reality, in the practical, real world, it actually can be a difficult diagnosis to make. And certainly in older patients, one of the major issues is to differentiate SAA from what we call hypoplastic myelodysplastic syndrome. And that can be a very difficult 
differentiation. And sometimes watching and waiting is the um, only approach to try to sort out the final diagnosis. In cases of SAA, the marrow cytogenetics are normal. And of course, this is also true in many patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, although in that syndrome, molecular biology will usually reveal some abnormality. Okay, let's talk for a minute about, uh, do we know anything about the etiology of SAA? Well, we, I think we all agree now that this is an autoimmune disease and that uh, T cells from patients will suppress the amount of poetic normal marrow growth in vitro. We also have a quite a dramatic response in patients to immunosuppressive therapy, notably with horse ATG or anti-thymocyte globulin. Uh, I think it's important also to state at this stage that the response to immunosuppressive therapy is age-independent. In other words, people at the age of 40 or in their seventh decade will have as good a chance of responding to immunosuppressive therapy if the diagnosis of SAA is correct. Of course, patients in their seventh decade will not live as long as patients in their fourth decade, but the response, as I say, to immunosuppressive therapy is age independent. Uh, two things that are sometimes confused in medicine are pathogenesis and etiology. And regrettably, in the vast majority of cases of SAA, the pathogenesis is unknown. So we have no idea what the cause of this rather rare but often fatal disease is. Uh, why do patients with SSA, uh, sorry, SAA die? Well, because of bone marrow failure, if untreated, they will die from bleeding and or infection. Now, most of the data we have goes back for more than 30 years and shows that without corrective therapy, such as HCT, patients will usually die from their disease, as I said, of infection or bleeding. However, with recent support care, we have no published clinical trials comparing the best support care with something like HCT or immunosuppressive therapy. So we really don't know how well patients might do with modern top-class supportive care. Um, we're going to say a little bit about HCT, which is extremely important. Um, we use bone marrow as a source of hematopoietic cells and not mobilized peripheral blood. And we have published in the EBMT that the use of mobilized peripheral blood cells instead of bone marrow leads to an increase in graft versus host disease, which is a major problem in patients with SAA, as this is not a malignant disease. The other thing is that in terms of HCT, we usually confine HCT to patients under the age of 30 years, as results are extremely good. 
we avoid radiation in the conditioning therapy because it has been published some years ago that radiation in conditioning therapy for SSA will lead to an increase in secondary tumors sometime after the transplant. The standard conditioning therapy, which has been around for over 30 years now, is cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, and short methotrexate as prophylaxis against graft versus host disease. In heavily pre-transfused pre patients, we may add fludarabine and antithymicide clobulin. As I've indicated, the major influence on the outcome of HCT is age. Under the age of 30 years, patients do extremely well. Between 30 and 40 years, it's really unsure. And some, in some centers, in patients who have no comorbidity, they will go ahead with a fully matched sibling HCT. And in some centers, they will give first-line therapy with immunosuppression. I think we are all agreed that patients over the age of 40 should have immunosuppressive therapy as the treatment of choice. It's also important to remember that patients who do not respond to immunosuppressive therapy in three to four months may in fact respond to a second course so all is not lost. Now, there are other approaches to the treatment of this rare disease, such as unrelated HCT or haploidentical HCT. Now, there is no doubt that the results of treatment for unrelated fully matched HCT have been steadily improving over the last 10 to 15 years. This may be because we're better at handling transplant recipients, or it may also be that patients with SAA, young patients, are referred for unrelated matched transplant at an earlier stage than they used to be 20 or 30 years ago because um, unrelated transplant results were poor. Patients were not referred until they had received multiple courses of immunosuppression therapy and had perhaps significant comorbidity. So the results are improving for whatever reason you like to think. Uh, a number of centers are now using haploidentical transplants for severe aplastic anemia in the absence of a fully matched sibling donor. One of the issues I have with haploidentical transplants is first of all, the follow-up time is relatively short. And secondly, a number of centers use radiation in their haploidentical conditioning. As I've said before, I am very much against the use of radiation because of the increased incidence of secondary tumors. A difference between HCT for severe aplastic anemia and leukemia of course, is that in leukemia, graft rejection is rarely a problem. However, in severe aplastic anemia, presumably because of the autoimmune nature of this disease, then graft disease can occur. The other issue 
in severely plastic anemia treated with immunosuppressive therapy is the occurrence of myelodysplastic syndromes in long-term follow-up of 10 to 15 years of patients who survive. Now, there is a, a large debate as to whether these patients originally had myelodysplasia, which was mis misdiagnosed, or whether immunosuppressive therapy in some way predisposes long-term survivors to myelodysplastic syndrome. And that debate continues. I'd also like to say that because this is a rare disease and because the results of transplantation with fully matched sibling donors is so good, it's imperative that patients with suspected SAA are referred to a specialist center as soon as possible. Now, what I've talked about is of historical interest, but is there anything new in the treatment of severe aplastic anemia? Well, first of all, there have been a number of trials using growth factors and stem cell factor. And I think it suffices to say that, by and large, the results have been unhelpful. And that apart from some Japanese studies showing that high-dose GCSF in children may have a beneficial outcome, in general, in adult patients, we do not use either GCSF or stem cell factor anymore. The newest uh, agent on the block, as it were, is a drug called L-thrombopag. And this is a thrombopotent receptor agonist, which has been shown in a number of clinical trials now to increase the response rate in patients with SSA who are treated with immunosuppression. That is, horse antithymocyte globulin, or ATG, cyclosporin, and L-thrombopag, for at least six months. The FDA has given approval for its use in combination, as I say, with ATG or cyclosporin as frontline therapy or in patients who fail to respond to immunosuppressive therapy. Surprisingly, this drug is associated with an increase in bone marrow cellularity, which I think was something nobody expected when the initial trials were undertaken. One of the issues, of course, as with all patients receiving immunosuppressive therapy, would the use of this new drug, L-thrombopag, be associated with myelodysplasia in long-term follow-ups? And it looks like the incidence of 10 to 15 to 20% is about the same as in those patients treated with immunosuppression alone. So it does not look like, at the moment anyway, that L-thrombopag is associated with an increase in myelodysplastic syndrome in long-term survivors. An interesting aside is that the FDA has also given approval for chronic ITP, not responding to standard therapy, and this may respond to L-thrombopag. So um, it's a disease which is rare, very amenable to transplantation. And now the newest treatment, L-thromboplag, may increase the response rate in patients receiving immunosuppressive therapy. And remember, please refer patients with a suspected diagnosis 
to a specialist centre as soon as is practically possible. I'm now going to spend a few minutes talking about a real live case just to illustrate some of the points I've made in my theoretical podcast. A 17-year-old boy was referred to his family doctor because he had a sore throat bleeding from gums and a rash on his ankles. He had vomited on a couple of occasions and had developed quite marked red eyes. His mother was quite upset by this and brought him to see his family doctor. He denied any cigarette smoking, alcohol intake, intake or use of recreational drugs, although that is some, sometimes denied in people who are using these agents. And he had been perfectly well with no history of any previous illnesses until about three weeks before presenting to his family doctor. The family doctor um, examined him and apart from the fine petechial rash and the bilateral subconjunctival hemorrhages, he did not find any other abnormality. Specifically, there was no enlarged spleen. I should say if the diagnosis of severe aplastic anemia is suspected, the finding of an enlarged spleen makes that diagnosis incorrect and you must look for some other cause for the pancytopenia. Uh, it is also important to remember that patients who are neutropenic will not show the usual localizing signs of infection, which we know are primarily due to the infiltrate of neutrophils and not to the infecting agent. So a fever of 38 degrees or more is taken as evidence of infection without localizing signs in patients who are neutropenic. So what did the doctor do? Well, be a good family doctor, he referred his patient immediately to a hematologist in the local center. And again, um, the, the hematologist admitted him to hospital immediately, carried out a full blood count, which revealed anemia of 89 grams per deciliter, uh, a slightly elevated MCV at 103, and a neutropenia of uh, well, uh, uh, of um, two by ten to the nine per liter. So we had a pancytopenia. When the hematologist examined him, he confirmed that there was no splenomegaly, and the petechial skin rash was probably due to the low platelet count. Now, two important points: it is important not to prescribe aspirin for these patients, as of course aspirin will cause irreversible platelet abnormalities in terms of platelet function and can precipitate bleeding. The second thing is that when the patient is admitted to hospital, an order should be written for the nurses and healthcare workers not to administer intramuscular agents of any type, as intramuscular injections may lead to large hematomas in view of the low platelet count, which can become infected and be extremely troublesome for the patient. So as I said, the patient was admitted to hospital. Um, the bilateral uh, um, subconjunctival hemorrhages look very dramatic, but in fact never interfere with eyesight. 
In this case, examination of the retina was normal with no bleeding. And this is important as retinal bleeding may be a prodrome for intracranial hemorrhage and should be treated with platelet transfusions. Um, we can take it that in untreated patients, a platelet count of 20 or lower by 10 to the 9 per litre is often associated with spontaneous bleeding and should be treated. Uh, the doctor also carried out a coagulation screen, which was completely normal. That is the PT and the APTT. Is this surprising? No, it's not, because the platelet count has no influence whatsoever on the coagulation screen as the platelet substitute is used instead. So a low platelet count will not prolong the PT or the APTT. The most prominent investigation or most important investigation to be carried out by the hematologist was a bone marrow aspirate and biopsy. Now, a low platelet count is never a contraindication to carrying out this examination. It's important to keep digital pressure on the bone marrow transplant or bone marrow aspiration site uh, until all signs of bleeding have stopped and to examine the site about 20 minutes after the aspiration and or biopsy. A small dressing should be applied and remember that large dressings are not indicated as they may soak up large amounts of blood before it is seen, but a small dressing applied to the side is usually, will usually suffice to stop any bleeding. Now, the differential diagnosis, uh, as I say, has now been narrowed down by the appearances of the bone marrow, the physical examination, the peripheral pancytopenia, the cytogenetics were normal, and the diagnosis of severe aplastic anemia was made. There was an immediate uh, uh, examination of the young boy's siblings, and happily, we found an HLA-matched sibling who agreed to donate bone marrow. And as I've said before, bone marrow is the preferred source of hematopoietic cells. I have to also say that in using unrelated uh, donors for transplant, which may come from another country, uh, donors may not wish to donate bone marrow, and you may have to be satisfied with mobilized peripheral blood, although it is not the source of choice. So um, a right atrial catheter was placed, and fever was treated, as I said, with intensive broad-spectrum antibiotics, and hyperalimentation was started. Whether hyperalimentation is necessary in all patients is still a moot point, but in our unit, it is a routine clinical practice. The um, donor was anesthetized and 1.9 by 10 to the 8 cells per kilogram of the recipient body weight were aspirated and transfused via the right atrial catheter. The patient remained pancytopenic for about two weeks and did not experience graft-versus-host disease. The patient remains on cyclosporin for one year following transplant as early discontinuing of cyclosporin will 
result or can result in a graft rejection. Conditioning therapy in this case was with cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, and short methotrexate. At one year, chimeric analysis revealed a complete donor chimera and the cyclosporin was withdrawn gradually over a period of six weeks. Ten years later, the patient remains alive and well with normal peripheral blood counts. So as is the case in the majority of young patients, HCT is an extremely rewarding and curative procedure. Although, as you know, it can be associated with early mortality and with severe graft-versus-host disease. Thank you. That was Professor Sean McCann for Episode 5 of EHA Unplugged. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you are passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and start your own podcast episode? You can reach us via education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.